0: Is here with us this morning, and I know he was smiling because of that song of praise that we were singing from our hearts. It's good to be together as God's people, encouraging each other and lifting up his name tonight. Uh, so, last week I did something a little different on Sunday nights because I'm kind of in between series, series, series. Someone will have to help me with that later. But uh, we did something a little different from our all-in readings. I'm going to do something again tonight on the story of Uzzah because it's another one of those stories. I've had several people say, so what's going on with that? Uh, If you don't have a clue what that's about, you can look that up, Uzzah, and we'll talk a little bit about that tonight because I do think that is a story, while troubling, um, it probably has something pretty important to tell us in in our time and place. So Uzzah tonight at 6 o'clock. We're on you version. If you don't have you version, you need to download that app for your phone or mobile device. It's great. Uh, we're also in the, on the bulletin with the sermon outline this morning. You can follow along there. So, came across a story this week from uh, news sources that uh, has been unfolding this year, and it involves a man named Albert Woodfox. He spent 43 years of virtually uninterrupted time in solitary confinement, in an isolation cell. Um, In February, so just a few months back, he walked free. He has, and you might already have figured this, but he has this dubious honor. He is currently the record holder for Americans in terms of the person who served the longest amount of time in solitary confinement. Decades, I can't even, you say the words, but I can't even imagine what this was like. Decades passed without him ever seeing the sun or the sky. No real human interaction besides a plate of food being shoved under the door. Decades where a stroll meant walking back and forth in his Six-by-nine-foot cell. Then he was released in February. Back in April, he was walking along a beach in Galveston with a friend. And there he was, watching these happy beachgoers children running about building sandcastles cloudless sky listening to the waves of the Gulf of Mexico rolling in on the beach there and one of the strangest more t- troubling things about his four decades in solitary confinement is what he says in a moment like that he was being interviewed in and, and just months after the state of Louisiana set him free on his 69th birthday, he says that he sometimes wishes that he was back in that cell. Hmm. When asked about this unusual confession, he says, oh yeah. You know, human beings feel comfortable in areas where they are secure. In a cell... You have a routine. You pretty much know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen. But in society, it's different. It's looser. He said, there are moments when, yeah, I wish I was back in the security of that cell. He pauses, and then he adds, I mean, it, it does that to you. It does that to you. And I can't, like I said, I can't begin to imagine what that was like, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that I can't. Um, Spending time in prison, I don't know what that's like, much less spending decades in solitary confinement. Neither can I imagine or begin to imagine what it would be like to want to go back to that once I was released and I was a free man. But I don't doubt his sincerity. There is something about us as people that longs for the comfort of the routine, the the security of what we know, the familiarity of the rhythm of the life we've established. There's something about us that clings to the old ways, to the old habits, even those we might freely confess we don't like, things we would like to get rid of. And that is, I think, part of our fallen nature. That we cling to that sinful nature. We cling to what has always been, even if it's not good. And then Jesus came along and he set us free. As Alan reminded us this morning, through his wounds, we've been cleansed. And after naming this bondage in John chapter eight. After naming this bondage and this addiction we have towards self destruction, Jesus says those familiar words in John eight thirty six So if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. In Christ there is freedom from sin. My sin problem has been dealt with. In Christ, there is freedom from perhaps our greatest fear, the fear of death. We know because of his powerful resurrection and the promise he made to us that death will not have the last word. In Christ, there is freedom from this this mediocre life, this life that is familiar but destructive. There's freedom from all of that because we have been set free through the cross and we've been launched out as salt and light as, as his children on this mission into this fallen world so now we come to Luke 8 this is the parable we're gonna be talking about working through this morning in Luke chapter 8 once again we find Jesus talking to a capacity crowd uh, a lot, very crowds of people from all sorts of villages and towns have come out to to hear what Jesus has to say to see what Jesus might do And what Jesus did at that moment with this vast crowd in front of him was Jesus told a story, a story about us, a story about our hearts. And it went like this. So it was that time of year when seed needed to be planted. A farmer then took out a large sack of this seed and began the work of planting it. He flung handfuls of seed into the air, knowing that probably most of it would never actually grow. Most of it would never actually germinate, sprout, and become part of this harvest months down the road. Farmers understand that not every seed is going to germinate. They know for a fact that most of them will not grow to maturity, and that doesn't stop farmers, does it, from planting? Because they know some of it will. Anyway, as this guy was flinging the seed around, some of it fell on the hard-packed soil that was the path, the well-worn path that he was walking on as he flung the seed around. So obviously... I'm not a farmer, but obviously 0% chance that any of that seed is going to become part of that harvest months down the road. It just lay there on that path, just waiting uh, for the birds to come and pluck it off. It It was bird seed is what it ended up being. Other seed fell on slightly more promising soil. It fell on a place where there was a thin layer of earth that concealed bedrock, maybe a half inch, maybe an inch underneath that soil. Couldn't have been more than, you know, two, three centimeters deep. And these seeds, Jesus tells us, many of them sprouted. I mean, just enthusiastically right away sprouted up, but they ended up being just blocked, right, by the bedrock underneath them. There was nowhere to go for those roots when they started growing. And so they would very soon wither and die in the noonday heat. Then some seed, of course, fell on soil that I think you could say was was really pretty good soil, except for one fact. It it had not been prepared. It had not been weeded. And so when this seed also sprung up quickly, um, germinated, sprouted, began to grow up promising-looking plants. It, it was then choked by the larger, sturdier weeds and thorns that were already there. And then, ah, yes, there was some seed that would fall on unequivocally good soil. And this seed would grow all the way up to maturity. It would end up producing a harvest, one Seed would end up producing 40, 60, 100 times as much as was planted. And the harvest was going to be great on that good soil. Now, you can almost see, (laughs) I just imagine the disciples and the crowd there kind of looking at Jesus because he's not explaining it. He's just talking about agriculture at this point. And you can see the quizzical looks toward Jesus like... We didn't sign up for a farming class here, okay? We're not the Galilee chapter of the of FFA, you know. I mean, we came here we came here for something else. We came here to see what this is all about. This ministry of Jesus. We've we've heard about it. We've heard about the miracles. Um, we've heard about free meals being served. You know, just a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish being turned into enough food to serve a multitude. What's going on with all this? this farming talk (laughs) with this class on soil analysis. And so Jesus tells his disciples, he leans over to that smaller group of his insiders, his disciples, and he says, what I'm talking about is actually the kingdom of God. And not everyone, Jesus says, not everyone is going to understand what I'm talking about. I'll let you in on a secret, he tells his disciples. What this story is really about is the human heart, or hearts, the different kinds of hearts that are out there. And in that, we get a pretty good look at our humanity and what is really going on when people hear the word of the Lord and have all sorts of different responses to it. Now, what I believe is true is that every heart longs to be free. I don't care who you are, where you were born, uh, what your upbringing. I believe that every heart longs to be free. Others yearn to be free, but end up going back to that familiar captivity of past routine and decisions. Um, And then others step into that bold adventure of the kingdom of God, walking with the Lord. So, In the parable, we have four kinds of hearts. And I think he pretty much covers about every kind of heart that is out there in these four. The first kind of heart we discover is the unresponsive heart. All right? The the, the seed that falls on the path. The hard-packed Teflon soil there, verse 12. They are the ones who he tells us in his explanation of the story. They are the ones who hear and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved so in these thousands that are gathered to hear jesus for a lot of folks the message just sort of just sort of bounced off their hearts i mean it had no chance there was no receptivity there there was no welcoming of the word. So, so you might be asking what I ask when I think about that. What were they even doing there? Why had they left their homes and their villages to go out to where Jesus was? I think it's really, really simple. This was the greatest show in Galilee. This was the most interesting thing going on in those parts. Nothing else came close. I mean, if you were around Jesus long enough, you would see demons come screeching out of lives that had been held in bondage by demonic possession. If you hung around Jesus enough, you would you would likely get to see someone who had who was paralyzed rise up and walk. If you were around Jesus long enough, you might see someone whose skin was white with leprosy completely cured in an instant. No telling what you would see if you spent a little time around Jesus. It was truly an amazing spectacle to behold. And his ministry had gone viral to the extent that no one wanted to miss out on this. He was in their parts. They were going to make sure that they were there. They saw what was going on. But actually consider changing their ways? No, 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 no. That's not what they were doing there, okay? They weren't there to change. They weren't really there to listen. They were just there to watch, okay? Um, they were just browsing. Jesus and this kingdom of God was, was for display only. And it was a simple thing, really, as Jesus says, a very simple thing for the evil one to just come in and just snatch the word away because it. Couldn't begin to penetrate the hard pack ground of those unreceptive hearts. And then there are these, I'd say number two, the undernourished hearts. The undernourished hearts. He says in verse 13, they are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it. Nothing at all wrong with that. But they have no root, right? Um, These folks, I imagine, pretty large group as well, these are enthusiastic members of that crowd that gathers to listen to Jesus. They applaud the miracles, right? Um, Genuinely excited about what they're witnessing. But here's the thing, enthusiasm and excitement, um, an emotional response, not a bad thing, But it does not necessarily mean that someone is really going to actually grow as a disciple. Okay, That someone's going to actually take those next steps. Uh, There could be joy at the love they saw in Jesus. Wow, you can just feel the love when you're around him. Hope in the message he preached of a a life after this life. Um, Some maybe were just happy and enthusiastic that Jesus had had cured their uncle or their daughter. I can't blame them for that. But they would not do what was required, nor had they done what was required to to feed their hearts, to nourish their hearts, um, to go deep with Jesus. No depth underneath the enthusiasm and the applause. By all outward appearances... You would say that the word had taken hold, but it wasn't going to grow, Jesus tells us. And it wasn't going to grow because there was no commitment beyond the moment, right, of amazement, jaw-dropping wonder, and the joy over what they had seen. And then there are those, the third kind of heart we see in this story are the unguarded hearts. Unreceptive, right, undernourished. How about unguarded? Verse 14, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. Jesus is left to compete with everything else going on in their lives. Jesus is added in, right? But Jesus is not in any way, shape, or or form given the throne of their heart. And so they look at themselves right back in the prison cell they had just been set free from. The old stresses and addictions, the familiar habits, they all come back with a vengeance. And the relationship with the King of Kings, with the Lord of Lords, is slowly choked out, slowly strangled by these other unchecked influences. An unguarded heart. Their hearts were unguarded because Jesus was, was, I think, probably for them an additive. Something they wanted to put into their lives to make them a little bit better, a little bit easier, a little bit happier. Jesus was less a savior than a seasoning, right, to make things a little bit better. Jesus was left to compete. The kingdom of heaven was left to compete with all the other stuff that was still there. And so they gave their hearts to Jesus, but they did not set their hearts apart for Jesus. They did not secure their hearts for Jesus. They were unguarded hearts. Finally, of course, that fourth kind of heart is the unlocked heart. The unlocked heart where this potential is unleashed by the kingdom. He says in verse 15, honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word, who cling to it and patiently produce what? A huge harvest. A huge harvest. I like that. They hear the word, but more than that, they cling to the word. The result? A massive Harvest. Good deeds. Goodness. Grace begin to flow out of their hearts, into the into their homes, into their families, into their workplaces, into their walk out in the marketplace. It reminds me of of another time when Jesus saw the crowds dwindling, right? One day thousands, the next day, dozens were following Jesus. And what happened there was that Jesus began to be very explicit about his call for sacrifice. Pick up your cross and follow me. He became very explicit about his call to to commitment. And that was not what the crowds had come willing to give him. And so the crowds began to leave in droves. And at this moment in John chapter 6... Jesus turns to his friend Peter and he says, Peter, are you going to walk away too? Are you going to leave me like those hundreds that are walking the other direction? And in verses 68 and 69, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe. And we know that you are the Holy One of God. Like, if I leave you, what am I going to do, do? Just go back to fishing again? No, you're the one. You've, you've unlocked my life. can't go back to that. I can't walk back into that confinement, into that prison of my past. And so he clung to Jesus. And this is the thing we know about Peter. Peter was not a perfect man, right? Peter's a guy just full of really apparent weaknesses. A man who was stumbling and and failing even after he decided to follow Jesus, but Peter had a different kind of heart, didn't he? He had a heart that clung to Jesus, said, I'm not going anywhere, Lord, Um, and that listened to the words and and wanted to, to go deeper into that. So this parable then, what does it mean to me? What does it mean to us? What is Jesus trying to tell us? I think we've got to admit, Jesus is once again giving us a very open, a very honest, frank assessment of ourselves, kind of holding up a mirror for us, as he often does. He's keeping it real, I think you could say, and that's a pretty good place to start. So when we think about what is this message saying to me, saying to us, the first thing I would say is it's telling us to be be honest to just be honest. That's not an easy thing to do. It's easy to say. Not an easy thing to do. Like I said, Jesus is being very real with them here. He lets us know, and I'm sure that as he's telling this story, it brought him no pleasure to point this out, but he lets us know, this is on your outline, that most people will reject the word. Like, we shouldn't be shocked. (laughs) When people reject the word, I mean, in the story, three out of the four soils are completely unreceptive. I mean, at least completely unreceptive in terms of long-term commitment. Um, they're not going to produce for him. They're not going to ultimately remain with him. Jesus is being very honest. That 75% fail rate there for his word. So I think we need to be honest, and I need to be honest, and that means when I come to this parable, I need to say, so where is my heart at right now? Where do, where do I find my heart on kind of this continuum of unresponsive to wildly responsive? Um, I think if we all walk away thinking, wow, I'm so glad I'm the good soil. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm not those other three kinds of soil. I think if we do that, then it's very possible that we haven't dealt with the message. Um, We haven't dealt with what Jesus is saying in a real sort of way. Um, We don't want to be, right? We don't want to be the ones Jesus was talking about in the middle of that parable when he said in verse 10, Their eyes are open, but they don't see a thing. Their ears are open, but they don't hear a thing. We don't want to be those people, right? And if you get real, if you honestly open up to this question, where am I right now? Where is my heart? Look, you may think, honestly, I have a pretty unresponsive heart right now. I'm in a season of cynicism. I'm, I'm wrestling with whether the Bible really is the Word of God, you know? You may say, I'm really struggling with with the idea that Jesus is the one, the Son of God through whom salvation comes. Being honest about where you find yourself at this moment, that's a really good place to start. And most people, as Jesus tells us, most of them couldn't do that. They had eyes, but they couldn't see They had ears, but they couldn't hear. They could not see themselves or were unwilling to see themselves in that story, right? Or maybe you just need to acknowledge, you know, honestly, I have allowed my heart, I've allowed my walk with the Lord to become malnourished. I am undernourished spiritually right now. I haven't been feeding on the Word of God. I haven't been spending time alone in the closet or wherever it is you spend time alone with, I haven't gone there. I've, I, I haven't been feeding on the things of God, but I've just kind of ignored what the Lord planted in my heart so long ago. And so I find myself withering spiritually. Well, don't deceive yourself. I think Jesus would tell us, don't deceive yourself into thinking showing up a church or believing that calling yourself a Christian is enough. Just trying to keep it real. If that's where you are, admit it. Admit it. And again, that's a good place to launch from. Now, here's where Jesus really wants to take us, where he wants us to go with him. And this is where we really begin cultivating our hearts for the Lord, that second thing. So we're honest. The second thing, though, is to be active, is to be active. Um, we have, let me cash that out a little bit here. We have, we have the Bible so that we can be transformed and not simply informed, okay? The Word of God exists. What we're doing here this morning is for your transformation, not simply for your information. Bible knowledge is not equivalent to spiritual maturity, and I will self-confess here, I thought it was for a long time. I can't, that was my scale. The more you knew about the Bible, the more close to God you were, the more spiritually mature you were. So I have to ask myself this. This is the, kind of the second tough question here. Have I settled for a lesser version of discipleship which emphasizes or focuses on learning rather than lordship. And that one should hit close to home, I think. I think it should hit close to home because it is probably, if not the, it is one of the great pitfalls of modern evangelical Christianity. The temptation to make what we're doing this faith of ours about information rather than transformation. Um, If you believe the right things, if you hold to the right doctrine, presto, you're a Christian. Where did Jesus ever say that? When did he say that? I don't think he did. In his ministry, one of the groups Jesus is constantly bumping up against is this group we know as the Pharisees. Good people, really. People who knew the Bible better than any other group around. And they loved the word of God. To their credit, they took it seriously. But you find as you watch them, they knew it intellectually, but not so much emotionally, right? Um, When the word takes root in my life, there will be a harvest. It will yield fruit. I won't be the same. I won't remain locked up in that prison of past failure. It's there in the fruit, in the action of the kingdom, in the leavening of the kingdom. It's there that we see the difference between learning and lordship, the higher calling, between a more academic faith about information and ideas and a living faith that springs from a relationship with Jesus. Verse 8. Still other seed fell on fertile soil. This seed grew and produced a crop that was a hundred times as much as had been planted. And this brings us to that final point there is about being wholehearted. I guess if I would sum up this parable, that would be the word wholehearted. Being wholehearted. So much of the parable centers on the problem of half-heartedness. Of, of partial responses, partial obedience to Jesus, of wanting a little bit of the Lord, uh, of, of adding Him into an already pretty good life. So, the challenge here is to fully embrace the Word of God literature that book that you have on your phone or, or, or that paper that you have in your hand, the, the Word of God, the literature, the Bible, 66 books there that God has given us. So fully embrace the Word of God, the literature, the Bible, and living, the living Word of God. It's Jesus. It's the person of Jesus. So the question I ask myself is, will I move beyond religion to relationship, fully devoting my life to knowing and following the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible? It's essential, right? I mean, but we don't worship the Bible. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the one who has revealed himself in the Bible. We live to honor and love the Creator, not the creed. You can read the book but fail to connect with the author of the book. You can. Pharisees did that. That doesn't do you any good. Being wholehearted means that, yes, I value the written word. Absolutely. But I know that there is much more than that. There is the word who is Jesus, the incarnate word. Verse 11 in the parable tells us that the seed is the word of God. The sower is throwing the seed, the word of God. But we know that the word of God is more than just ink on a page. John told us in the first chapter of his gospel, verse 14, the word became what? The word became one of us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us it's the word. This week I got to hang out with a couple of couple of old friends, Mark and Shirley Woodward who who years ago started a ministry called Let's Start Talking. They had been missionaries in Germany, moved back. He was a professor of, of literature at Oklahoma Christian University then after they moved back. And they thought, well, how can we stay in touch with, with a, the German churches? And, and how can we do some good there? And so they started, they came up with this concept. Why don't we have, because everyone wants to learn English, right? So why don't we just go over with groups of students, this Oklahoma Christian at that time, now it's, it's, it's nationwide, but why don't we just take some groups back? And we'll just sit down and read the Gospel of Luke with people. And the idea was, in the beginning, we're going to let the Word do the work, right? No no manipulation of people, you know, no trying to back people into a corner uh, religiously, no trying to start debates or arguments with people, no complex... Uh, Scheme, you know, 20 steps to lead someone to Christ. Look, we're just going to share the word. We're going to sit down one-on-one, share the word. They're going to come because they want to practice their English. We'll see what happens. And what happened has been been amazing, you know. Um, We know it here through our Friendspeak ministry. As people experience Jesus, the living word through the Bible, the written word, things begin to happen, don't they? Lives are unlocked. Mark's eyes this week started tearing up. as I just said, so what are a couple stories that you just remember that are almost unbelievable of how powerful the word is? And he said one time, there was a family right as the wall had fallen down The Soviet Union was kind of in some disarray And we started sending teams there for the first time We sent a team, it was a family And they, they went to work in one of the secret cities Cities that did not appear on maps They were former uh, Soviet military installations With cities around them, didn't appear on the maps So we went there and one of the, one member of the family Was a 14 year old boy And one of this 14 year old boy's readers Was a retired Soviet general who wanted to improve his English and they read for six weeks just through the gospel of Luke, 14 year old boy, teenager from America and Mark says at the end of that uh, at the end of that project this general came to him his eyes watering and he said I've lived my whole life without hope now I have hope a life unlocked they found out that in another case he said look Shirley started sharing this story about they had worked with some people and and they and then later they hear what came of it so uh, they work with Muslims they work with all kinds of people and so now she said there's one of the elders at a church in Germany is an Iranian guy who was a Muslim, who we started studying the Word of God with, and just just letting the Word do the work. And now she said we found out he's an elder of the church. Well, the Word is incredibly powerful. The Bible works on us, works in us. It changes our heart. It yields a harvest. The Word, Jesus, this relationship we have with Jesus, the living Word, works in us and through us to bring hope to a despairing world. And isn't the world despairing these days? So this morning, the invitation is this. To open your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. To open your whole heart to Jesus. Put Him on in baptism and begin following Him. Begin nourishing your heart with the Word and growing up into that full potential, having that unlocked in your life as a disciple of Jesus. Or maybe you... You're here this morning and and, and you've given your heart to Jesus in the past, but more recently you find yourself at a place that's less responsive or your heart is undernourished or unguarded from the things of the world. You've let other things come in and compete with the lordship of Jesus. So this morning, why not come again to Jesus as we respond and just invite him once again, Lord, unlock my heart. I want to be wholly yours. However you need to respond, let's stand together and worship.